And welcome to this week's edition of The Collector's Show. I am Harold Nickel. Thank you for joining us. You've tuned in to the best place on the internet or anywhere else to learn about the world of collecting and collectibles. This week, we have two guests. Instead of our usual one, we're going to be exploring the world of collecting newspaper cutouts with a bona fide authority in that field from the Museum in Washington, D.C., and that's Newseum, not Museum. It's a museum that is devoted to the news media. You're going to enjoy that. And then later, another museum devoted to collecting computers and old computer parts. That coming up in the second interview segment of The Collector Show. But first, as always, we're going to talk about the news from the world of collecting and quite a bit going on this week. And this is something I think that everybody who collects needs to be aware of. And we've talked about hobbies and collections that will get you in trouble with the law before. We've talked about bird egg collecting, rare bird egg collecting, you may recall some months ago. But this is a story about some people in California who were arrested for disturbing an Indian burial site. It's from Camarillo, California. Some of those arrowheads and artifacts you may come across could get you into trouble. In Ventura County, three men were arrested for disturbing an American Indian burial site. Beyond the wildflowers of the Santa Monica Mountains, there are treasures in the hills. The most treasured, the most cherished possessions of the Chumash Indians. Ventura County Sheriff's deputies seized several items that were taken by suspected looters. Notice they didn't refer to them as collectors, they referred to them as looters. Deputies displayed relics found with three Newberry Park men, I'm not going to tell you their names, a tip led deputies to private property in the coastal range where they say they found the men scavenging. They were very cooperative. They said they were collecting some things yet in the dark with flashlights. For them, it was a hobby. They had been collecting, and it had been in their family for generations. There are legal ways to pursue archaeology as a hobby, but this is not one of them. Scientific information is lost when objects are moved, said archaeologists. It could be an object found we can't date, explained Professor Colleen Delaney Rivera of Cal State Channel Islands University. The arrowheads found were used to hunt elk, deer, and marine mammals and are said to be 1,000 to 2,000 years old. And then the beads the men found show the Chumash traveled and traded with populations on Catalina. By finding out where artifacts come from, we can see the population, said Professor Rivera. We are now finding Southern California beads in Colorado and the U.S. Southwest. So be mindful of um, laws about what that story described as looting, not collecting. And if you see uh, an Indian artifact on the ground, it's likely that you're near one of their burial sites and it will be considered a felony to pick it up and take it with you. So just leave it alone. Or report it to uh, authorities or if you know uh, an archaeologist, you may help with the discovery. You can get credit that way. We've talked also before on the show about Chinese stamp collecting, but there's a Chinese stamp that is likely going to auction for over a quarter of a million dollars and could very well set the world auction record. It's expected to fetch six figures in Hong Kong later this month. It's a special 
Chinese 19th century stamp, and it's going to be the star of a philatelic auction in Hong Kong later this coming month. It's an 1867 three-cent red revenue stamp, and it's valued at $258,000. This particular stamp is one of only 32 recorded copies out of the original 50 on which the value was changed using small Chinese characters. So it was like it was a misprint, and instead of printing new ones, they just overprinted. Sort of like the upside-down airplane stamp. Very rare. There are an estimated 18 million stamp collectors in China alone. And just the population of the country dictates that there would be more of anything there. Here's a story about President Sarkozy, speaking of stamps, who is also an avid stamp collector. He's revealed that he likes to indulge in what's known as the hobby of kings and has collected stamps since he was a young boy. This is according to the BBC. With the help of international leaders in filling in his albums, Mr. Sarkozy's collection is reportedly growing into one of the best in the world. As the BBC rightly points out, Philatelli, which is a fancy way of saying stamp collecting, is very well respected in France, Germany, and Scandinavia, and even India. Mr. Sarkozy's revelation that he's a stamp collector will hopefully go some way to dispel what the BBC describes as a social stigma surrounding stamp collecting. And I think the stigma they're talking about is that um, some people might consider it, I don't know, nerdy. I don't. <laughs> I think it's cool. I wish I had time to devote to stamp collecting. Now here is an excellent story because it's getting to be spring and we're getting into baseball season. Card companies are getting very creative. In fact, in the past few years, Tops, which is the baseball card to collect, if you ask me, has inserted a few surprises in its baseball card sets just to see whether collectors would notice and to get a few non-collectors to take notice, too, and pick up a pack or two. In 2007, it was a Derek Jeter card with Mickey Mantle digitally placed in the dugout and with George W. Bush in the stands. In 2008, it was Yankees fan Rudy Giuliani, former mayor Rudy Giuliani, celebrating in the Red Sox World Series dogpile, a no-hitter highlight card for Johan Santana, a no-no that never happened, and more. Wow, you got to be clever. Last year, it was a card of President Barack Obama throwing out a ceremonial first pitch and a smattering of rare cards of legends like Babe Ruth and Ty Cobb. When the New York City-based company released its 2010 baseball card set last January, collectors started finding cards with pictures of New York Yankees who had been <laughs> pied in the face or hit with pies, a tradition the team started last year after walk-off home runs. And last month, Top teased the fact that a short printed variation card existed in the set featuring Abraham Lincoln. And we talked about that card on the show last year. So... If you are a baseball card collector, have a sharp eye and see if you can find those cards. Now, what it's going to mean, though, is you're going to have to buy two um, because we all know about the unbroken packs rule and the individual card rule. So the tops people are uh, being very clever and exceptionally creative when it comes to 
inspiring you to buy their cards. Okay, that's it for the news this week in the world of collecting. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for the first of two interview segments on The Collector Show. Thanks for listening. I'm Harold Nickel, and it's Web Talk Radio. It's the interview segment of The Collector's Show this week. We're very lucky to have with us Carrie Christofferson. Carrie is the curator of collections for the museum. Now, if you're into news like I am and you love collecting in museums, then the museum in Washington, D.C. is the perfect place for you. And Carrie, welcome to The Collector's Show. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Now, first of all, Carrie, before we get um, into the topic today, which is going to be newspapers and newspaper clippings, tell us just a little bit about the museum, where you are, and the kinds of things that are on display there. Well, the museum is located in Washington, D.C., right in the, the thick of the cultural district downtown, just off the mall, across the street from the National Gallery of Art. And we're a museum dedicated to the history of news, and journalism, as well as the importance of the First Amendment, and particularly its role in a free society. And as somebody who does internet radio and uh, broadcasting and other kinds of promotional work and advertising, I'm certainly a huge advocate of the First Amendment. So uh, congratulations to you guys on that. If we were to visit the museum, what kinds of things would we see there? Well, we have a wide range of exhibits. We're sort of a little bit of a history museum and a little bit of a technology museum. Um, we have wonderful, wonderful artifacts on display from um, eight sections of the Berlin Wall on display inside to um, original news books dating back to the 1500s and the dawn of printing. Yeah, I think we forget how important printing was, not just for... Uh books and literature and knowledge, but for conveying different kinds of news and, and pamphlets and different kinds of printed material from way back when. Absolutely, absolutely. One of the first things that people started printing when they um, when Gutenberg unveiled the, the press and movable type was to um, put the news into what we call news books, and they're sort of the precursors to today's newspapers, and they were passed around and um, allowed news to, to travel far and wide. Um, the thing that really got my attention, because I was looking on your website, and there was an article on there about newspaper collecting. And right. one of the things I want us to talk about in the digital age and with so many newspapers going out of business is the collecting of newspaper, newsprint, and different articles that people cut from newspapers. Now, I can see collecting First Man on the Moon and um, things like that. Absolutely. But is that still a hobby that's relevant today? I think so, absolutely. One of the reasons the, um, the article that you noticed on our website was um, first put up is because we began... Uh, last year, after the um, inauguration, after the election and inauguration of President Obama, we began to get an incredible number of inquiries from uh, our 
visitors to our website or our constituents about how did they pre- how do they preserve these newspapers? They were still compelled to keep the news from this historic election and historic inauguration um, uh, for posterity's sake, for their children and grandchildren to see. And so that's how um, we really got into the idea of making the, the information very accessible on our website about some of the important things to consider when preserving newspapers. And it would seem to me that preserving any kind of paper, that um, heat, moisture, extreme temperatures, those kinds of things are really are really the enemies of paper. Is that a fair? Absolutely. Now, the biggest enemy, I will say, is light. Oh. Um, light damage is actually the worst. It is both cumulative and irreversible. I mean, it's not it's not a great idea to get a, a newspaper soaking wet, but it can recover from that. Um, okay. Whereas the light damage is actually the worst. So we always suggest that if you're um, keeping newspapers or other paper documents, really, um, your best bet is, is someplace dark, first and foremost. And then you're absolutely correct. The next thing to do is um, make it someplace with, um, moderate temperatures and moderate humidity. You don't want it too dry or too moist, and you don't want it too hot or too cold. So putting my uh, newspaper collection out in the garage is not a good idea. The garage is not your best spot, <laughs> nor usually is um, the, sun the porch. basement or the attic. Yeah. We, we would vote for, you know, the, the shelf in your hall closet. Um, under under the spare bed in the guest room might be better bets for spots in your own home that would be um, reasonably good storage locations. So that takes care... Museum. Sorry, go ahead. At the museum, of course, we have specialized storage that um, has high controls for both temperature and humidity, and naturally we keep things away from light as well. Sure. Now, for those of us who are at home, you know, everybody's house gets gets dusty. If I keep things in the in the hallway closet... They're still going to accumulate dirt. Is there, I mean, would you just put it in a box or, or laminate it? Well, we would recommend, of course, um, going a little further than just a simple box. We would recommend that you um, put the pieces uh, in archival quality folders, um, a folder that's um, got no uh, acid in it. Acid is, is the sort of one of the natural enemies of paper, and, and paper sort of naturally has um, acid in it. So we vote for putting it in um, acid-free buffered archival folders, um, if you can, and then from there inside also um, an archival quality box. Um, but if, if you can't go to those extremes, certainly keeping the, the dust off by uh, putting everything into a box would be a good idea. Inside a plastic bag, which I think people often go for, is not mm-hmm. usually your best bet. Yeah, I wouldn't think so either because there's still moisture inside the bag. Absolutely. And the potential to trap moisture is pretty pretty high there. Yeah, you don't want it to rain inside your bag on your new on no, your uh, no. newsprint. If you're just joining us, it's Web Talk Radio. I'm Harold Nickel on The Collector Show, and we are talking with Carrie Christofferson, who's the curator of collections at the museum in Washington, D.C., and we're talking principally about collecting newsprint. So now that we know how to store our newsprint, avoiding light, dirt, extreme temperatures, how do we display our newsprint? Well, truly, I mean, uh, if, you, if it's something that's really important to you and your family, um, you can get things properly framed. Um, 
we recommend going with glass or acrylic that has a UV filter on it and using mat board that's archivally sound, um, 100% cotton fiber, um, acid-free, preferably buffered, and that sort of thing. And any reputable frame shop should be able to um, understand those requests and take care of them for you. And then naturally, if you're going to hang the piece uh, in your home, you would want to put it somewhere where it's not sort of in the bay window, mm-hmm. <laughs> in the light of the day all the time, because again, the, the light really will damage it eventually. And even if you had those kinds of light protecting glasses, it would still fade eventually. Definitely. I mean, certainly the UV light is the most damaging mm-hmm. to um, paper or other other objects, but um, all light has energy and it is, you know, all of it will ultimately, over longer periods of time, cause damage to your pieces. So. That helps us with the individual print pieces. Now, one of the things we know on this program, when we when we talk to people like yourself who are curators at museums, is that most museum collections started with somebody's individual collection. Was that the case with your newsprint section at the museum? Absolutely, absolutely. We, um, when we began our original development, uh, back in the early 90s, we were um, helped um, in the sort of overall development of the museum and in particular in the collection by two um, renowned newspaper collectors, Eric Karen and Steve Goldman. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, we bought both of their collections, we acquired them, and so they became the basis of the museum collection. Um, but we have obviously over the years added to that quite extensively, and we're up to the point now where we um, have about 35,000 historic newspapers and periodicals in the print news collection. That's a bunch. I would imagine it takes up a lot of space. Now, for the, the two men who you just mentioned, what what characterized their collections? Were they entire issues of newspapers? Were they just special issues? You know, um, a lot of people expect that we'll have full runs of a particular newspaper. Yeah. And that is absolutely not the direction that we were interested in taking with the collection. And that's what made um, the Karen and Goldman collections quite appealing to us. They aren't just, um, you know, 50 years of the Seattle Times. Right. They've gone about and we've continued um, the tradition of focusing on the headlines of history. So really significant moments in American world and journalistic history. And those are the, the areas that we collect in. So we may have, we have, for example, um, about 500 newspapers related to uh, man landing on the moon. Oh, yeah. And they are from all of the, all 50 states and from countries all around the, the globe. Yeah, that the full run was one question, but I guess, you know, frankly speaking, I could go to the library and get a full run of the, uh, I don't know, the Houston Chronicle or pick your favorite newspaper. Right. But the kind of more historically significant papers, 500 newspapers about the moon landing, that sounds like a fun way to collect newspapers. It is. And we, you know, we've taken the time to, to try and pay strict attention curatorially to um, we'll collect a newspaper with the, the closest proximity we can manage to the, to a particular event happening. 
that, or where there's a particularly significant um, community who relates to the event happening. Recently, um, because we continue to collect almost daily here, we um, have collected newspapers related to the Haitian earthquake. Right. Um, and our, at, at present, our, the closest um, we've come and um, may ever come, actually, is the Miami Herald newspaper. I mean, it's relevant to have the New York Times, the Gray Lady, you know, the old standby, but um, for the purposes that the Miami Herald's going to have a, a, a different sort of take than just than the New York Times will for the Haitian earthquake. Well, considering their audience. Um, exactly, exactly. So we try to take that into consideration as we curate our collection. So for people who are thinking about the possibility of starting a collection of, of newspapers, you wouldn't necessarily recommend get issue one all the way through to the to the bitter end. It wouldn't be like collecting comic books, but you think right. more in terms of event-driven collecting. Absolutely. That is definitely the approach we've taken. Now, Now, some people might um, have other passions. I know that there are collectors um, for not maybe newspapers so much as um, periodicals, uh, news magazines, or magazines in general who collect volume one, number one. Mm-hmm. Is there a community of people who collect newspapers, like um, a club or an association? You know, there there is not really a strong club or association, anything of that nature, nothing quite so formal. But um, the people out there who collect and deal all know each other. Certainly, mm-hmm. they know each other's collections fairly well. And um, I think that there are probably many more... Um, <laughs> I don't. I don't know if I want to say quiet collectors or, um, or underground collectors. Yeah, maybe <laughs> underground collectors. There are folks who, you know, obviously um, are interested in this, but but you know, newspapers they can quickly take up quite a lot of space, and they can be very affordable, right? Which I think can, can be the demise of of uh, you know space in your home if sure. you, if you really get. Um, jazzed about things, but there's, there are many collectors out there who um, have sizable collections, but I think many, many, many more who have sort of middling collections, and, and they collect what they like, and um, events of significance to them. Um, there are folks, I think, who collect final editions of mm-hmm. papers, which unfortunately is becoming more and more Well, isn't that the truth? Prevalent. Yeah, I think there's... Uh... I know we live in the digital age and people like their internet and computers. And I do too. I, I read news off the internet, but I still subscribe to the local newspaper and there's just something about it. It's, uh, I guess just something I'm accustomed to doing and hopefully the newspaper will business will figure out a way to, to morph and survive in the, in the digital age. I guess, uh, I guess we'll see. It'll, all those final editions will be a boon to collectors, but not such good news for reporters or uh, journalism Absolutely. folks. I mean, certainly the the news media is changing, but I don't think we'll ever be without the uh, the the daily print edition. If somebody were going to start a newspaper collection today, I think what I'd suggest, and, and let me know if you agree with this, is pick a topic and start collecting those. Absolutely, something that you feel passionate about, something that that you are particularly interested in or speaks to you. Um, we have, I know of collectors who have just an immense amount of 
coverage of the space race. They started um, collecting on space, you know, back in the 50s, you know, with Sputnik, and they've kept it going all the way through. And there are folks who um, have particular passion for Hollywood and on and on. So whatever it is that's, that's your passion, you can certainly find it out there in the news, and that would be the way to go. That'll keep you interested and, and um, yeah, keep you going. The right um, impulse to take proper care and keep apprised of what's really out there and what's important. Now, I want to ask you um, a little bit more about the museum because um, I'm, like I say, I'm a huge consumer of of news. And in terms of the things that we can see in, as curator of collections, let's say I've got an afternoon to spend there. What should I come see? Well, an afternoon is not nearly enough time, I'll have to say. But um, among my favorite uh, exhibits here, and maybe the spot where you can sort of get the the all the kernels of what we want to talk about uh, is the News History Gallery. Oh, cool. And the News History Gallery, it's, it's on one of our upper floors, and it's made up of a combination of exhibits. Down the center of the gallery is the core of our newspaper collection, um, our Headlines of History exhibit there. Um, there's three tiers of print news items. Uh, the top tier is in open cases, and then the the second two tiers are drawers you can pull out, and you can just trace the the headlines of American and world history from, like I said, the dawn of printing straight up until um, modern times. Um, surrounding that are cases that um, cover things more thematically. The down the center is sort of the timeline uh, approach to our exhibits, and then around the the perimeter is. Um, thematic uh, spots where we look at um, different concepts in the news, uh, journalism as the fourth estate, war reporting, sensationalism, uh, advancements that have been made by um, people of color and women and and minorities or other communities who've who've had to fight hard to get their place on the front page or, you know, at the top of the news. And there's also um, interactives in that space where you can dig a little deeper and learn a little more out of our front page collections, as well as um, a variety of theaters where we have presentations from the history of newsreels to um, uh, a look at the power of the image. Well, I'm hoping to be in Washington, D.C., probably not this year, but maybe early next year, and I guarantee that the museum will be one of my stops, Washington, D.C. is absolutely one of my favorite places to visit um, because of all the all the museums and all the history there. And I'm, you're on the top of my list for my trip uh, next May, in May of, of uh, 2011. And if you, don't, if you don't mind, Carrie, can you give us your website? Absolutely. We're um, at www.newseum, N-E-W-S-E-U-M. It's a little... Play on words there between news and museum. Yep. And it's .org. And truly, um, it, between now and next May, when you can actually uh, step through the threshold, the website offers some great opportunities to learn about all the things that we do here and get a sneak peek at some of the exhibits. You can't get everything online for sure, but you can get a, a good flavor for what we've got to offer there. And for listeners, I'll be posting links to the museum on my website at thecollectorshow.com. 
And Carrie Christofferson, who's the curator of collections at the museum in Washington, D.C., I want to thank you for being on The Collector Show with us today. Wonderful. I want to thank you for having me. Stay tuned. More of The Collector Show coming up next. I'm Harold Nickel. Well, you know, every week on The Collector's Show, we try to introduce a different kind of hobby or introduce a different type of collecting expertise, and we certainly have both of those this week. We're going to be chatting today with Dag Spicer, who is the senior curator at the Computer Museum. And Dag, welcome to The Collector's Show. Thank you. Great to be with you. Now, before we get too deeply into the interview, tell us about yourself and how you became curator at uh, at such a place. Right. Well, uh, I actually came from an engineering background, and I was a, a digital circuit designer for about 10 years. Then I went into um, the history of science. I went back to school and was always interested in the sort of the larger forces that are at work in the development of technology and science. So I went back there, and uh, as I was making my way through grad school, this opportunity uh, at the museum came up. That was about 15 years ago, so mm-hmm. uh, I think it was a good decision. I very much enjoyed uh, working with, with old computers. Now, your background in engineering and in history, I think that you know obviously makes you perfectly suited to such a role, but did you collect computers yourself? I did, I did not collect them myself. Um, I tended to move around uh, a great deal, so it wasn't a very convenient hobby for me at the time. I, I still don't collect them, actually. Um, mainly because I'm surrounded by them all day long, so (laughs) there's less direct need for me to to collect them myself. So for the people, though, who um, come to the museum and uh, who are interested in in old computers, what do you think sparks their interest? What are they looking for? I would say most uh, people who collect computers are driven by nostalgia. So typically... um, they collect computers that they used, that maybe their first computer or computers they used a lot when they were growing up. Um, and you can actually trace uh, the generations of, of people based on their age. You can pretty well guess what, what their first computer was. And sure enough that, you know, you can engage them in conversations on that computer and they'll, they'll light up right away. See, now that's, that's interesting because what we learn on this show is that more often than not the things that inspire people to want to collect are exactly what you just described i just wouldn't have associated and it just proves how much i know nostalgia for computers oh yeah well that's uh... I, you know maybe it's because we're in silicon valley and there's kind of an unusually high percentage of nerdy people here, but, <laughs> um, people are very passionate about about early computers especially the ones they use they uh... They get very emotional about it and, and feel a real connection. I would I would not have guessed that <laughs> about computers. I mean, they're useful, but, right. you know, the longer we go on, um, the better they get. And frankly speaking, I'm just interested in having the best performing computer. When, what I remember about the first ones that I had is that they were slow and you had to slop out or swap out. Uh, well, maybe slop out is right, but swap out you know, discs and big floppy discs, and uh, I don't miss that at all. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're right. I think uh, if you go with, if you compare it to computers of today, it, it's, you know, not very interesting, but if you look at it as an artifact in its own right, just the same way you would, say, collect a, a 1930s Ford Roadster, there's 
much faster cars on the road now, but there's something about that that model and and the associations, the emotional associations you have with it that makes it compelling for you. And nostalgia is still uh, even. I think it drives most of collecting, uh, almost regardless of what it is you're collecting. You'd you'd be uh, exactly right because that's a, that's precisely what we encounter with the folks that we talk to on this program. It's nostalgia. It reminds me of when I was growing up and things like that. Yeah, I mean some sort of professional collectors might do it for as an investment, but um, that's a very long-term kind of thing. These they don't really appreciate that quickly. Um, these computers, so uh, you know there are better investments. I would say. Well, yeah, and and you know, terms. oh sure, and and we never encourage people to collect things because they're going to be potentially. Uh, yeah, because more often than not, they won't be. But you should collect the things you love and enjoy. Exactly. And yes. if you love computers, and um, then why not collect them? Yeah, and, and you know, some of the early ones, like a Commodore 64 or an Apple II Plus, those computers are actually better at teaching kids computers than a modern computer, which kind of isolates uh, a lot of the things that you would find useful in learning computing uh, from you. So if you want to learn BASIC, for example, and you know, a Commodore 64 or an Apple II or a TRS-80, mm -hmm. um, these are all machines that came out in the 70s, uh, is actually a really good platform for education, even today. I remember that there was an old, uh, it wasn't Radio Shack, but there was a Heathkit computer. Oh, yes. Do you have that at your museum? We do, yes. Now that I might be nostalgic about, because I loved Heathkit. Um, when I was an older teenager, mm. and I just thought it would be so cool to have that computer. Yes, yes, that was probably the H8. It was called. What did uh, What did it do? Uh, well, you know, most of these early systems uh, didn't do an awful lot. They were constrained <laughs> by memory, right, and, and also by I/O. So they might have only had paper tape input and a, and a printer or a teletype for output. And uh, so it's not terribly, I mean, it, it is interactive in the sense that the machine is all yours, but um, there's still a long time between when you type in commands and when you can get when you get an answer on these early machines, the ones that had no operating system or no no monitor. Basically, you turn it on and, and you're in, in the machine. You need to know how to, how to speak to it directly um, without even a basic interpreter to help you. So You'd have uh, to be, I think... Um Real smart and uh, have a terrific background in programming to be able to do that. Well, yeah, uh, I don't know. You know, there are kids that that play with these things, and like they did back in the machine with, in the era of the machines I mentioned, and they they had no background and they just uh, dove in there and and taught themselves. And uh, you know that computers, computing is one of the few fields where people can actually become very good without a formal education. And. Uh, uh, Many high-tech companies here in Silicon Valley, for example, are filled with people who have very minimal or, uh, or even no formal programming experience but have taught themselves um, starting at a young age. To have that focus and that depth of interest is uh, yeah. interesting, to say the least. Well, and kids have lots of free time, too. <laughs> <laughs> they must. Compared to us. So. Compared to, uh, to adults. If you're just joining us, it's The Collector Show with... Harold Nickel, and we're talking with Dag Spicer about collecting computers. Now, what got me started on the on the journey 
that ends now with you and me talking is I was looking for someone who collected old video games. Is that something that you guys have at the museum, or are you more focused on the computing apparatus? We have uh, actually a lot of video games, several thousand uh, historical games, including their documentation and uh, some of the advertising that went with them. Oh, cool. And it's a very, um, you know, like they say on the uh, Antiques Roadshow, this, these are very collectible right now. LAUGHTER <laughs> um, yeah, there's a very healthy market in used uh, video games. I'm not saying that it's uh, lucrative, but it, there's a high turnover. There's a lot of trading going on and uh, and exchanging of, of of games. Well, I wish I had known that because I've I've literally given all of my old video games away mm. over the years. Doggone it! And you know, I had one of the very original Intellivisions. Oh. Um, that was fun. But it didn't last. It 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 broke oh, yes. repeatedly. Yeah, that was such a bust, and I think that was something that Mattel had actually come out with originally. Right, and it, I think maybe did they sell them at Sears? I think or yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Um, th- th- slightly better than Pong, but uh, yeah, <laughs> but not much. Yeah, Pong is an interesting example because after about ten minutes, you know, you've kind of mastered the game. <laughs> Yeah, there's not a lot to it. There's a dot. It's like ping pong. There was one Christmas season, I think it was 77. Uh, I'm not a, totally sure on that date, but it was one of the Christmases around that in the mid-70s. Mm-hmm. That, that was the year of pong. Yeah. And uh, everybody bought it. It was under everyone's tree. And uh, I think within a week, probably most of those were, you know, in a closet. Yeah, the... the 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 level of play and the sophistication you could speed it up and and that was about it yeah. um and the control level wasn't great so video games have obviously come a long way since then now let's talk about the museum because um more often than not when we when we speak to someone who's a curator of uh of a museum it started with someone who had a large collection who who started the museum or donated it to an existing museum is that how things started for you guys? Well, we didn't quite start that way, but it's um, the official creation story of the museum is that um, there was a very large computer built at MIT in the 1950s called Whirlwind, and um, this was a very significant machine. It's probably the most important computer you've never heard of. Um, I admit I've never heard of it. Yeah, <laughs> very well, very few people have, and yet um, this is in 1953. It had things like a like a light pen input and uh, dedicated you know you would interact with it directly and um, but the people only, the only people who could use it were grad students at MIT so it was a very privileged kind of situation but it was essentially presaging many of the things we have with personal computers today and this machine was being scrapped and was on on the way to the dump this is back in Boston mm-hmm. um, and the head of uh, research or R&D for Digital Equipment Corporation, which used to be a very large maker of mini computers, based in Boston. Um, his name is Gordon Bell, and he called MIT and got them to turn the truck around, the semi-trailers, with this big computer because it was so big. It took, I think, three semi-trailers to my goodness to contain it all, and um, had them move this to one of uh, Digital Equipment's sort of outbuildings where he he just couldn't bear to see it scrapped. Yeah. So it was a rescue mission initially, and that was our first artifact. And after that, so uh, it came from MIT? 
came from MIT. And, you know, big as a house, probably. Oh, yes. And it used tubes and uh, copper wiring and real crude stuff, I imagine. Yes, it was, it was all vacuum tube-based. So compared to a computer today, you know, how big would a computer be that would be able to do the same work that the one at MIT did? Or is there just no good comparison? Uh, well, uh, there's, there's no comparison today because they're so far beyond uh, whirlwind already. But, you know, something like... Uh, maybe an Apple, Apple II, or mm. uh, maybe something a little bit more powerful, but not okay. a great deal more. Maybe one of the first PC, or an early PC, for example, probably had as much power. And certainly now, something like a Trio, or I'm sorry, a, a Palm Pilot or uh, a BlackBerry has millions of times more power. Back in the time of Whirlwind, memory cost a dollar a bit. Oh dear. So not not even a byte per bit. So that's say roughly eight dollars, say ten dollars a byte, which means that if you buy a, a terabyte hard drive now, which you can get for about ninety dollars, that's in 1953 prices that would have cost over a trillion dollars. Man. So it gives you a, a, an example of how fast uh, technology has moved and how how quickly prices have dropped. Yeah, they they. Uh they work better and they're a lot cheaper, so hard to beat that. Yeah. But in terms of the rest of the museum and the, <clears throat> excuse me, the other things that um, that come from there, were they donated by people who had computer collections, or did you go out start looking for them? So in, in the initial uh, in the initial days, we went out and looked for various. We collected against a list. Mm -hmm. so we, we knew exactly what we wanted to collect, and it was based on. Um, computers mentioned in a textbook, which was written by Gordon Bell, hmm. the same guy who founded th this museum, um, which studied computer architectures. So his idea was to collect one sample of every of the every one of the machines that was in his book, which was considered to contain all the canonical computers. Uh, that is, the computers that were groundbreaking in some way. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we did. Uh, as we got more and more known, especially once we moved to the West Coast in 96, um, we started getting flooded with donations, actually. And every week we, we turn away quite a few, um, mainly by word of mouth. Sometimes it's the website. Uh -huh. But we have over 100,000 objects now. Wow. So that's, that's pretty good in just 30, 35 years or so. That's a lot. That's yeah. a substantial collection of anything. 100,000 of anything is a bunch. Yeah, and mind you, that includes documents. So, um, so when you constructed the collection that's at the museum, you said it was uh, these icons of uh, the computing world. But I, I doubt his book had that many in them. How did you, uh, how did you evolve the collection once you had fulfilled Mr. Bell's book, or I guess it's Professor Bell? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, because what we sort of initially started out as was as a milestone museum. That is, everything in the collection was, was milestones. It then sort of changed when we moved out west to become more of a, uh, it's not quite a Library of Congress model where, mm -hmm. they take, take, where they want extreme comprehensiveness, but it's close to that. So it's, it's moved from collecting a small number of highly significant objects to uh, a larger number of objects that show more gradual evolution. 
Can you give us an example? Um, well, for example, we have uh, a complete run of all the iPods that were made, including you know the first one. Okay. And uh, so it's like a little evolutionary tree. You can see how, whereas before we never would have done that. We would have collected the first one, and that would have been it. Okay. Um, so the the first one would have been uh, the ground-breaking yeah, uh, iconic piece. Exactly. And the iPod, and I love uh, I love my iPod, and I can't go anywhere without it. And I have turned the car around to go home and get it um, when I've forgotten it. Um, but I think that's a good example of uh, when they started out, it was a black and white screen, and they were kind of bulky. And now, with the uh, advent of the tablet that's coming out, I guess, next month, um, you can see how far they've come from this black and white, it will play songs to I can watch movies, I can watch television, and listen to songs, and it's all in color, and it'll fit in a shirt pocket. And it has a camera, too, doesn't it? Um, the newer ones do, yeah. yeah. Um, I don't have a, a tablet, but I've got, um, oh, whatever the latest generation iPod was. Right. Um, I didn't intend to collect them, I just, I just liked it. No. So, are you collecting iPods? Well, I guess I am. I've got, yeah. I've got four. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess that's a collection. People collect them unintentionally, I think. <laughs> yeah, and I've got uh, computers of the same way. Um, I just can't throw away a computer, so I've got um, laptops and old Macintoshes out in the garage, which kind of brings me to my next question. In terms of the the stuff that's inside, you always hear that there's gold inside of computers. Is that true? Uh, in terms of recovering the gold and yeah. making, making some money? Yeah. Um, there's, well, it depends on the system. I would say in the modern, you know, in a modern computer, there's not enough there for you to, for an individual to go and get the chemicals and remove it. It would amount to, you know, maybe fifty dollars worth of gold or something, uh. and, co and cost you hundreds of dollars in reagents and chemicals to yeah. get, to get it. And it's very dangerous too. It's an extremely dangerous process. Um, there's various processes, but they're all pretty nasty. Um, okay. In the older mainframe computers, there was tons of gold. Oh, really? Yeah. So oh, that's so cool. Where they used them was in the edge connectors on the end of circuit boards. So when you plug a circuit board in, it has little gold fingers on the end where it mates with the computer. Mm -hmm. and that is, it connects itself to the computer through those gold contacts. And it was um, a, there was a very big industry, actually, in just snipping those off that is snipping the end of the circuit board with the gold on it off mm -hmm. and collecting those by, you know, if you have a mainframe, it could have 5,000 circuit boards in it. So it makes a lot of sense for, for those situations. Uh, but mainframes are fairly rare now. Yeah. And there we call them servers. Um, and uh, But gold is still still used, but it's it's uh, kind of deeply embedded in there. It's So there's, there's no kind of get-rich-quick... Uh, aspect to it really i'm going to keep looking for the get rich quick solution but um for your description dangerous and expensive is a lousy combination yeah. so we'll i'm just going to leave that alone and i don't know i'll figure out something to do with old computers um in the meanwhile it's the collector show with harold nickel on web talk radio we're, we're chatting with dag spicer about collecting computers now other than my uh old macintoshes in the garage if someone we're really looking to start a collection of computers. Mm -hmm. What would what would your advice be? 
Well, uh, the first thing would be what, uh, just to echo what you said earlier, which was uh, pick an area that you really love mm-hmm. and uh, that speaks to you emotionally and, and intellectually as well. And uh, because if it doesn't, you're just going through the motions and you're, you're going to lose interest in it as a hobby pretty quickly. Right. Um, so the first thing is pick an area that you're really passionate about. The second thing would be to um, do your homework and learn about the, this area before you buy anything. <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, it's, you know, you can go out and buy things and you may, you may get deals and so on, but you're never really quite sure without a bit of uh, research. And uh, you also... You know, there's a lot of sort of gotchas when, you, when you're collecting something as complex as a computer. There are a lot of different parts. And uh, the more, you know, knowledge that you know about that system, the more likely you'll get what you, what you want. There won't be pieces missing due to, you know, because it's, it wasn't sort of understood between the two, because you didn't know better to, enough to ask. Um, so pick an area become passionate about it and then start start playing playing the game based on your your budget and uh, uh, you know some of the we all dream of finding a a, um, a, a diamond in the rough and in fact right. I think about six years ago someone here found an Altair which is uh, a very early computer it came out in 1975 it was a kit it's called the Altair 8800 right and, and it's actually the, the computer kit that Bill Gates and Paul Allen wrote their first basic interpreter for it. Oh, wow. An, an interpreter is just a, like a, a program that lets you talk basic to the computer, uh, talk to it in the basic programming language. And the, com- the name of their company was called Microsoft. Oh, geez. With a hyphen in between. <laughs> and um, so that, because of that um, provenance or history, all Altairs have become more collectible now. Oh, that's cool. And they were a kid in 75 for about... $400, and they're now selling for about 10 k Wow. And somebody here at the museum found one in a garage for $2. No a, way. At a garage sale. So um, those kind of things still happen. And, uh, you know, if you just go to as many garage sales as you can, a lot of people don't know what they are. And, and they do kind of, if you don't know what you're looking at, it kind of looks like old junk. Yeah. It's like, like many collectibles, you know. Um, takes takes a bit of knowledge to know what you're looking at. Now, does it matter, like, if we find an Altair that works or uh, a Compaq or, or a, not a Compaq, but a Commodore 64, does it matter that the computer works or not? It's, uh, it'll be worth more if it does work. Okay. Uh, on the other hand, if it's been restored poorly, and again, I go back to the Antiques Roadshow, where mm-hmm. somebody brings in a, a beautiful 500-year-old chair, but then says that they repainted it, you know, a month ago because... It looked ratty, <laughs> and, un- and unfortunately, you've just destroyed all this historical value yep. of the object by doing that. So, in the sense of computers, if the restoration—that is, if the person who uh, worked on it to get it back working again has done a bad job—that can actually decrease the value. That's a good word. It's uh, part of the discussion, not just with the antique furniture, but with uh, the condition of all different kinds of collectibles matters. Yeah. And uh, so, if you're uh, a ham-handed soldering iron operator um stay away from the computers if uh if you want to if you want them to retain their value i guess that's what you're saying yeah it's uh, you know uh, it's it's a fine line some people are it really i think you have to ask yourself uh, and answer honestly how comfortable you are 
getting into the guts of a computer. Yeah. If you're if you're right up on it, and I don't know, you're an engineer or you're just by experience, you know a lot, a great deal about circuits and so on. Then you know there's a lot, lot less at risk. The main thing that goes is the power supplies, and mm. they often go with kind of an ex- a little explosion or a mini fire. So, oh yeah. So you got to watch those. Uh, yeah, be very careful. It's a very precise way to to bring up an old system, so that that doesn't happen. And um, actually, radio collectors and people in the amateur radio community are very strong in that area, in terms of resurrecting old radios and and uh, dealing with old power supplies. In fact, they're much older. They, you know, they deal with hundred-year-old power supplies. Now, is uh, something like that? Do you guys offer courses or any kind of teaching at the museum about how to do that? We we don't. Uh, that's an interesting idea. Well, yeah. If there's a if there's a dime to be made at it, let me know, <laughs> and I'll uh, I'll help you promote it. Okay. Uh, tell us about the museum. How can we find you guys online, and uh, if we wanted to visit in person? Right. Well, online we're at computerhistory.org, and uh, in person we are in the Bay Area. That is the San Francisco Bay Area, about thirty minutes south of San Francisco, in a town called Mountain View. Okay. And we're actually. Uh, Gosh, I guess about three minutes away from Google Google headquarters, so um, you can drive by Google as well when you come here. If w- um, if sorry, if we drop by, how long would it take us to go through the museum? So the museum right now is in a is in a construction phase on an exhibit that's opening at the end of this year. So right now we're kind of in a pardon our dust phase. So mm-hmm. we do have some smaller exhibits to see, but it would be if you really want to get the most out of it towards the end of this year would be the time to go and any time after that. Okay. Um, we have a 25,000 square foot exhibit with um, about 1,100 different computer objects on the timeline and that will actually also be online. So uh, everything we do in the physical world is also done online because in effect we get a lot more visitors online than we do um, in person. I would imagine. And um, it, it would be... Uh I think, I don't know, it would be some kind of weird irony if you guys didn't have just like a a really incredible website, right? Yeah. Well, I, I hope it's good. Yeah, I'm, yeah. Well, Dag Spicer, thank you for coming on with us this week and introducing us to the uh, computer collecting hobby. My we pleasure. appreciate it a great deal. My pleasure. Stay tuned. More coming up on The Collector's Show right after this. Don't go anywhere. Well, that's going to do it for this week on The Collector's Show. Be sure to join us again next week. You can follow me on Twitter if you would like, and you can also read more of the news that we talked about at the top of the show at my website, which is very simply www.thecollectorsshow. You can also listen to past programs, and don't forget that we are also available at iTunes for a free subscription, and you can hear all of the shows that way. Also, next week, it looks like we'll be talking about computer game collecting, if my luck holds up, and I booked that interview. And we're also going to try to reconnect with another expert on candy mold collecting coming up next week on The Collector Show. As usual, thank you for listening, and come back next week for more from the world of collecting. 
If I had a million dollars If I had a million dollars Well, I'd buy you some art Thanks for listening to The Collector's Show. See you next week. If I had a million dollars I'd buy your love I'd be rich.